as we continue to journey through the season of Lent in what we seek to be a journey with Jesus, uh, following the gospel lectionary texts as we observe and live and walk alongside of Jesus at different stages in his ministry, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. This is Matthew's account of the transfiguration. And this is a story that we might read and out of familiarity pass over too quickly. I don't know about you, but I'm maybe a little bit tired this morning. Um, We've lost an hour of sleep with this whole spring ahead thing. Maybe some of us have uh, people who are sick in our homes, or we've had a lot of travel, we've been gone. Whatever the case may be, there is part of our mind or our heart or our body that's just tired this morning. I encourage you, as we come to God's Word, to find whatever it is within your spirit that can draw you into this text, to put yourself there, to overcome the tiredness, the hindrance, the, the maybe temptation to tune out. I'd rather that you tuned out during the sermon than during the reading of the Word, if, if that's a preacher's plea for attentiveness to the reading of the text. We'll be reading Matthew 17, uh, verses 1 through 9. And I invite you to imagine yourself there. Pay attention to the pictures that form in your mind. Because we think in pictures, not in words. And so we want to give our attention to the picture in our mind that this text creates. But before we do so, we're going to join together in uh, in a prayer of unison for our prayer for illumination throughout the season of Lent. They are both found in your devotionals, um, and the words will also appear on the screen. Let's join together in a prayer for illumination. By the way, if that is a a strange term, this is simply the prayer that we are asking the Holy Spirit to illumine the text to us, that the words on the page are not just paper and ink or pixels on your screen, whichever the case may be, but that God's Spirit speaks fresh to you through the Word. So let's pray together in unison. Eternal God, the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, in the strength of the wills that serve you. Grant us so to know you that we may truly love you and so to love you that we may fully serve you. To serve you is perfect freedom. In Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll indulge me, we're going to start a moment of story time with Stephen. I was 16 years old, and I was working uh, on the farm with my parents. And I took the truck, and I, I took the dog with me. And a 45-pound German shepherd, well, half German shepherd, half a little bit of everything else with me. And hopped in the truck. We went from the farmyard by the home place uh, to the homestead where my dad grew up. And actually, uh, none of us live there anymore, but there's two grain bins, uh, one grain auger, and a few tool sheds. I was dropping a few things off at the homestead. I had to pick something up from one of the tool sheds there. And then I was going to head back to the farmyard, to the home place. So home place, homestead, you know, we've all got our internal language for describing places. While I was there, I I left the dog in the the truck because I was only going to be a minute. And I got out, and I I got everything I needed by the grain bins. And then it's about 120 yards from where I parked the truck to the tool shed that I was going to. Now, the only other inhabitants of that area is uh, about an eighth of a mile past the homestead, down a lane, towards the Kankakee River, was kind of a hostile hermit that lived in in an old rundown trailer out there. And we just kind of kept our distance. He had two big dogs around his property. And I am at the point where I am furthest away from the truck, and I, all of a sudden, I hear this roof, and I look up, and I see both of his dogs running towards me, and both of them, it's not just that they're barking and running, because, I mean, I like dogs, I mean, most of you, you know, if you've got a dog, you know, I, I like to just hang out with them, but it was the fact that they were snarling, and they were large, and they were in all manner of appearance hostile. Now, I'm a good farm kid, so other than Sunday morning, I've always got a pocket knife on me. And I had this knife on me that day. But I'm standing there because I know I cannot make my way back to the truck in time. I will not outrun both of these dogs. And there's nothing for me to get into or climb on top of that will keep me safe from them. And they're closing distance fast, they're big and they're snarling. 
and I have one pocket knife. And so I'm thinking in that rush of adrenaline where everything slows down and you process as much as you can in about a tenth of a second, I know that my best case scenario is that I might be able to stab one of them and then know that the other is going to bite me and that I'm going to be attacked by two really big dogs. I left my dog in the truck. She jumped out the window and came, not, not just running and barking, but screaming past me. Have you ever heard a dog bark in a way that it is actually a scream? A scream as if to say, don't you dare touch him. He's one of mine. My dog is smaller than either one of those two. And yet the ferocity and intensity, she shot past me and barked and screamed at these other two dogs that were both bigger than her. And they both tuck tail, literally, turn around and start running back towards their property. And our dog, a really threatening name, Cinnamon is her name. <laughs> Cinnamon chased both of these dogs all the way back to their property line, through the field, across an irrigation ditch, back to their property line. And now I'm the one screaming after her, because if she catches them and bites one of them, they're going to get in a fight, and she's going to lose. But she chased both of them all the way back to the property line, and then she took a wide arc around before coming back to me. She came back to me at the truck, and I'm, I'm urging her to get in because we need to get out of here. And she's on point, like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, who's next? Anybody else? Smaller dog chasing off two much bigger dogs. Now, I had seen my dog bark before. She was a great guard dog. Whenever there was anybody on the farmyard, she'd let us know. But never before had I seen that kind of ferocity and intensity and what I would call a, an intense love and a protective desire to make sure that I was safe. I saw a side of that dog that I only saw that one time. Never before had I seen anything like it, and I would never see her quite like that ever again. But that moment of just her fury, her wrath, her protective love, gave me all the assurance in the world that I was so safe. I didn't even know the type of protection that I had brought with me until I saw her in, in all of that protective mother bear mode, chasing those two dogs all the way back to their property line. Now I tell that story for two reasons. One, is I wonder if the disciples had the same realization of just how majestic and powerful and mighty Jesus was until the story of the transfiguration. When they see Jesus in his glory, and just for a glimpse, they fall down in terror when the cloud encircles them, and when they look up, it's just Jesus again. Just normal Jesus, the one they interact with every day. The one that they walk with and eat with and talk with, and they listen to his teaching, and they've seen him heal people. But never before had the disciples seen something quite like this, where his face is shining with light, his clothes are just exuding bright light, a picture of glory. Now, I know that when I have an interaction with someone or something, 
even if you only see it once, it changes your impression of them. It changes the relationship because it has enhanced your knowledge of who someone is. I think in the same way the disciples, only Peter, James, and John, have seen this picture of Jesus that he does not always go around walking like this. He's not an LED bioluminescent preacher. Most of the time, he's just a plain clothes guy preaching the word of God and healing people. But the disciples have seen a glimpse of glory. And now it has changed them. Because they, when they think of Jesus, will always be impacted by the vision of the transfiguration that they saw. That kind of impact changes you. You've seen something different, something bigger. And I wonder if they've ever faced persecution and asked each other, do you, do you remember when? Do you remember when we saw Jesus on the mountain? And what kind of hope and encouragement that would bring to know that whatever faces them, whatever assails them, whatever temptations and trials would come up against them, to know that it is the glory of Christ, the one that they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, it is that Jesus who cares for them and loves them, wants them to be protected and under the shadow of his wings. That's one reason I tell that story, is to think about how one interaction where you see a different side, a full side, something that shows power and majesty and might, how it impacts you for the rest of your time. But the other reason I tell that story is to draw attention to something that's happening in our minds. I intentionally did not show you a picture of what my dog looks like. But do you have a picture? Probably. And in fact, you do, whether you think about it or not. Can you see two big black dogs snarling and running towards you? You can see the pocket knife, but that's just for special effects. <laughs> do you see grain bins and a gravel road? Has your mind painted the picture of where I was in such a way that you can share just a little bit of what it would be like to be there with me? Hopefully. Because the human mind thinks in pictures, not in words. We paint pictures with our minds. The practice that we want to encourage this week is to focus on imaginative prayer, which is the very practice of the way we listen to a story and form pictures in our minds, but to do so with great intentionality. To read this text prayerfully, in such a way that we are paying attention to the pictures that are coming up in our minds. To imagine ourselves walking up the mountain with Peter and James and John and Jesus. To wonder just what did Jesus look like at that moment where the light was shining? What, what do Moses and Elijah look like? And maybe this leads us to wonder, how on earth did Peter, James, and John know that it's Moses and Elijah? What's the look on Peter's face when he stammers out a few words? Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What does it look like when this bright cloud envelops them in this scene that's already glorious a bright cloud envelops them. And what does that voice sound like? 
if we read closely and attentively, we read those words, it, it will echo us. We'll listen for the echo back to Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And as Pastor Audrey mentioned, taking one step closer in authenticity with God, I always encourage the first line of interpretation that any of us do is how we read the text. When the voice from heaven says, listen to him, is it scolding? Is it encouraging? What tone does that voice take in your mind as you read this text this week? How does it sound? How does Jesus sound when he says, get up, don't be afraid? Is he chastising the disciples for for being so afraid? I don't think so. I think that refrain of the New Testament, do not be afraid, is always meant to be words of assurance. And there's a lot about this text that makes sense. If you heard a voice from heaven and were enveloped in a cloud, I think you and me and just about everybody else would also go face down on the ground in fear, in in terror, in reverence, and in awe. And even what, what Peter says makes quite a bit of sense. And I think he's trying to look for something smart to say, as I think any of us would. But when he says, I'll put up shelters for you, he, he's referencing the festival of booths where they would set up little, little houses, little shelters, little tabernacles. So even what Peter says makes sense. I maybe stuttered a little bit when I read his piece because I think I'd be searching for words if I was in Peter's position. Imaginative prayer is a type of reading the scriptures in such a way that we're paying attention right to the details. What is the look on Peter's face when he's going to speak for the crew? At Consistory on Monday, we read the the passage of the Ascension in Acts chapter 1. You know, this is where the disciples have seen Jesus lifted up into glory, and they just, you know, stand there. And we wondered, how long were they standing there waiting before two angels dressed in white said, why are you still looking at the sky? We wanted to give a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of sympathy to the disciples that we all might just stand there looking there too. It's kind of like that moment where who breaks the silence? Who's the first to walk away? And so it takes the angel's intervention of saying, he's going to come back. You've got work to do. Imaginative prayer is one of the practices that's in your devotionals. And in the sermon discussion class, we'll discuss it a little bit further and, and dig in with more depth. But this is one more practice that comes out of the church from the monastic tradition. And I I want to be careful in in explaining that that's, sometimes we think, oh, these ancient practices are something strange or weird or mystical. Uh, But these traditions come from groups of people who committed their lives to monasteries, to scripture reading and prayer. Their whole lives committed to scripture reading and prayer. And you can assume that over centuries of this practice of commitment, they probably came up with some helpful things for the rest of us to be mindful of. They've devoted their lives to just reading the Bible and praying. And this is one of the practices. And maybe for us, the little bit of resistance that crops up is that it sounds almost childish. We're asking you to use imagination. We think, isn't that what kids do? Yes. It's for children. And it's for children of God of any age to imagine yourself in the narrative of Scripture, to pay attention to the picture in your head, because it'll reveal to you things about your view of God, 
how people say things, what things look like. This is a practice of paying deep attention. And I would say that younger children do it better than we do. And so parents and grandparents, let that sink in for a moment, that in a certain sense, your children and grandchildren can read the Bible better than you can, better than I can. Because as we get older, we become familiar with words, we, we don't pay as much attention to imagination, and we might get lazy about paying attention to the details of the text. But it is with childlike faith that we can imagine what this was like. It's out of the mouths of infants that God has ordained praise. And it is the words of Jesus saying, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot perceive it because you're not imagining anything beyond what you know. Imaginative prayer is a very skilled, dedicated invitation for us to spark up our own imaginations, even when it's a little bit like being a child again, so that we can read the scriptures deeply. We get to ask a lot of questions when we slow down and pay attention to all that's happening. And we get to wonder about it. But the ultimate question is this. Does reading Scripture in this way, does reading Scripture at all, does this change you? We can imagine what's the impact on the disciples for them being there. Does it change them to be with Jesus in this moment? There's part of me that says, I wish that all of us could have been there, that, that we could see what happened with our eyes, that we could see Jesus transfigured on the mountain. But in fact, we were. We have been. Because if we believe that the Bible is what we say it is, that this is the witness of Scripture, we were there with the disciples because this is our story. This is our invitation that we get to put our minds in the text as well. Transfiguration is a short glimpse of Jesus' glory that changed even the perception that Peter, James, and John had. Does it change us? And does reading your Bible and praying, does it have any effect on you? Or do we check it off the list and it doesn't sink into our heart? Do not be afraid, says Jesus. Do not be afraid as we enter into this season of Lent. I know for many of us, it's a practice to fast in Lent, either by giving something up or taking something on. But also that the number one reason that people give for not doing either of those things is to say, well, devoting yourself to scripture reading and prayer during Lent, aren't you supposed to do that all the time? Well, yeah. And if you're giving up something like bad, shouldn't you do that all the time? Well, yeah. But there is a psychological brilliance that was built into Lent, built into Jesus' temptation and all the other places that Pastor Audrey mentioned last, last week where 40 days occur. Do you know about how long it takes to establish a habit? About 40 days. These 40 days of Lent where we apply ourselves to something specific will build within us a habit. And as St. Augustine said, habit becomes necessity. So what about in Lent where we try to do prayer practices, where we try to read Scripture faithfully, that we establish a habit in 40 days that becomes necessity for us? 
Or maybe we give something up, and at the end of 40 days, we realize just how much we don't miss it. Habit becomes necessity. And so these 40 days are a time to journey with Jesus in some intentional way, to think about where can I walk more faithfully with my Savior, and will it have an impact on me? Will it change me? Can I put my heart and soul and imagination into the Scriptures, and can I really imagine who I'm speaking with when I pray, that I am addressing the Lord of all creation, that we're speaking to Jesus Christ, who is transfigured before his disciples, that great and glorious picture of God. Does it change us? Is our heart transformed by where we put ourselves? And there's also grace. Because maybe you've already messed up Lent, or maybe you didn't start anything at all, and that's okay because it's not too late. Maybe you already indulged in the thing that you gave up. You, you snuck a chocolate bar. You had a soda that you said you weren't going to have. Maybe work got crazy this week and, and you didn't get to your Bible reading time that you had set aside. Or maybe Friday, that you went from work to the weekend and the prayer time that you had scheduled just didn't happen. That's okay. Because today is a new day. Because when we mess up a fast, it doesn't mean that we throw it out the window and give up. It means that we reassert ourselves and dedicate ourselves to it. This is, in fact, where I believe the church has a lot to learn from AA and other 12-step recovery groups. You messed up, but today's a new day. Keep working towards that glimpse of glory that you had. One of the things I love about North Holland is that we can try just about anything once. Even a lip-sync battle. We can try anything once. But when we're drawn to do something again, when we're drawn to make something a pattern and a habit, is when we've seen God at work. In a little bit after the sermon, we'll give an update. Um, Larry Van Riel will come up. We'll share a few things just about our building project. But one of the things that I wonder is the disciples got to see this glimpse of Jesus. They heard God's voice, and it changed them. What are the moments in your life that changed you? that had an effect on you, that had an impact on you? And where did you witness that impact on others? This is our last week of Kid Connection. And it shouldn't surprise me that my students blow my mind at least once or twice or a half dozen times during the year because that's God at work. And I forget sometimes that God is at work all around us. It shouldn't surprise me that a German shepherd would be protective of one of its own. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, the Lord of all creation, has this moment of glory with his disciples. But so often we are surprised by God at work. What is it that's going to surprise you? And are you willing to pay attention to see God at work? I think in the next year, we will see God at work in new ways among us. And will we take a moment to savor it, to reflect on it, to give thanks to God for it? And to let it change us, to let it change our heart and mind, to be attuned to how God is working among us. A glimpse of glory that changes us forever. More than anything, my friends, I hope that we're attentive to how God is at work and that our very imaginations are at work in wondering what God is up to in the Word as we read carefully, with the imaginative mind of a child. And as we read the world around us with imaginative childlike faith of how God is at work, 
in our lives, in our families, wherever we go. Scripture, in this way, is a gift to us, not an obligation to read. But as we go, go with the reminder that God loves you so much that God wants to reveal God's self to you, that God wants to show you a picture of God's glory, and that there's no shame and that there's no earning this kind of glimpse, but simply a loving invitation from your Heavenly Father to pay attention to that God that already loves you and wants to reach out to you. Let's pray together. God, transform our minds in such a way that our imaginations may long to see you, may imagine your face shining upon us, that our minds may be attuned to the details of what it looks like when you show up in Scripture and in our lives. Lord, give us hearts to see you and imaginations that long to see the very details of the dust on your feet as you walk from village to village. And so it is, Lord, we pray that you are a God of love and mercy. We pray that you bless us on our Lenten journey by your light that the disciples saw that day. By your light, call us to faithful following. By your word that we have read this morning, by your word, call us to attentive listening. By your cross, the cross on which you will be crucified, that we will remember on Good Friday this year. By your cross, call us to sacrificial obedience. And by your Holy Spirit, call us to repentance, joy, and service. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.